0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Good morning. Appreciate the privilege of speaking to you today. It's been a busy uh, summer and fall season. I haven't been here a lot, but looks like things might settle down a little bit. Um, Even though I just preached in India last week, would you believe that? I did it from my office from 2.30, 12.30 to 2.30 (laughs) a.m. To them, that's 1 to 3 o'clock. But there's this group over there that really wants to uh, go through my book simply by grace and other things eventually, probably, so happy to do it. And uh, there's other projects going on. I think you might hear about some of that later. So um, when Gary asked me to speak today, um, I told him a month or so ago, I said, uh, I'm sorry I'm going to be in Israel with a group. So I'm kinda happy to be here. (laughs) We did promise people the adventure of a lifetime though. So, <laughs> if we had gone, it would be quite an adventure, wouldn't it? Um, now, I told them also we would walk where Jesus walked. Just uh, don't trip on the landmines. Um, and over here is Bethlehem and uh, Bethlehem bomb shelter and so forth. It could, it could have been quite an exciting tour. But uh, God knows tomorrow, and he tells us not to presume upon tomorrow. So here I am today, glad to be here today with you. You know, we've been hearing a lot um, in the news today uh, since the events in Israel about this Iron Dome that protect, protects Israel. Um, and that's, that's really what is preserving them from the missile attacks that, that they're bombarded with daily, uh, is this Iron Dome. And I got to thinking, you know, I think there's something there that not only intersects with the Bible, but your in my life as well. And so I want to talk today about God's Iron Dome of Grace, but first we want to find out what exactly is the Iron Dome. Maybe some of you already know and have um, have looked into that. Hello. There we go. The Iron Dome of Grace was developed in 2011, And employed for the first time really in 2014 and it's uh, a system that uses a very sophisticated radar and information gathering from one system to analyze and predict the trajectory of incoming missiles to determine if they're going to hit in civilian areas and be a danger to people so when it detects the velocity and the range and the landing point of these missiles, then they can employ the Iron Dome missiles which are fired by Israel to intercept those missiles in the air and destroy them before they reach the ground. I'm holding it upside down, there you go. (laughs) So missiles are fired and then the Iron Dome missiles go up there and they, they find the enemy missiles and destroy them. And it's, they haven't revealed exactly how many missiles have been destroyed since its deployment, but some say 4,000 missiles, but thousands and thousands of missiles have been destroyed that would have otherwise done a lot of damage to civilian areas. And it is said to be 90% effective. So that is what we see in the news today, and that's kind of how it looks and how it, how it works. But I think that Iron Dome is really part of what we see in the Scripture as God's plan for Israel. And I think that there's a reason to appreciate that from our perspective, though I don't think we're Jews here today, and we're certainly not in Israel. There's something that we can appreciate about the fact that God preserves his people. God preserves his special people, and he's got our back as he does have Israel's back. And it's called grace. It's called something we don't deserve. It's unconditional, meaning that God promises it, and it does not depend on our behavior, obedience, or performance. And so he has promised to bless us and ultimately We win the end game, although there may be difficulties in the meantime. And that's what we read in scriptures also, that Israel will win the end game. They will come out victors and they will be restored as a nation, no matter what the world or Satan or the enemies throw at them. And it all is because of God's promise to them from the very, very beginning. So let's just do a really quick survey of the Old Testament because really the story of Israel, their disobedience and God's preservation is is the story of the Old Testament, but we don't have time to go through all the books of the Old Testament. So we're just just gonna hit some high points to remind us of what God has been doing. Since the very time of Abraham, who is considered the father of the Jews, when God called him and he came into the, the land of Canaan and God told him in the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12, Uh, beginning in verse 1, that he would be a father of many nations, that there would be a seed that would come from him that would be a blessing to all the world. Telling us then that he would make a great nation of this people and uh, they would be known as the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And he even attached a promise there that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those or him who curses you. And that promise will be followed and fulfilled throughout the Old Testament beyond into the New Testament today as well as tomorrow. And so that promise is then reiterated to Abraham's descendants like Jacob. I mentioned Jacob because Jacob's where we get the name Israel. Remember he was renamed Israel. And the word Israel means someone who struggles with God. One who struggles with God. Because Israel, Jacob had that wrestling match with God, you know. And um, and even today israel we see is struggling their whole history has been a history of struggle so appropriately named and yet god has take took care of jacob as he took care of joseph he used joseph to deliver the nation uh in a time of famine when they brought the people down to egypt but then that went south and of course the israelites became slaves in egypt and were held in bondage for 400 years until god sent the deliverer named moses to take them out of Egypt. And that's the book of Exodus where Israel is is saved or redeemed and delivered out of bondage into freedom. The freedom of a wilderness where God then had to take care of their needs by his special provisions. He had to watch over them all the way and and give them manna from heaven so they could eat. He had to give them water from the rock. He he even gave into their prayers one time and gave them meat to eat. And uh, he just took care of them in the wilderness and protected them along the way. But they disobeyed. And even in spite of their disobedience, you remember that whole generation died away before they were able to enter into the promised land some 40 years later. 40 years in the wilderness. And when they are about ready to enter into the promised land, the king of Moab, which is uh, on the east side of Israel, uh, along the Jordan River, the king of Moab wanted to curse the nation of Israel. He was threatened by them. And so he hired prophet named Balaam to curse the people. And three times Balaam tried to curse the people of Israel, and he couldn't do it. Instead, what came out of his mouth was blessing, a blessing that said, what I see is a nation as many as the uh, sand of the sea or the beach or whatever he said. Uh, There's going to be a lot of them, innumerable amount of them. And he said uh, that there's going to be a king that comes from them. And he, and he talked about the king that would come from them. So there was a future for Israel. Even, even when someone intended to bless them, God preserved them. And they enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, which means Savior, Yeshua. Uh, that's the name of Jesus, by the way. Joshua, the Savior, takes them into Israel. And they're victorious as long as they're obedient. But when they're disobedient, God allows them to lose some battles. When there's sin in the camp, like the sin of Achan, he allows them to lose some battles at Ai. But when they're living for the Lord, they're successful and God gives them rest all around. After Joshua passes off the scene, there comes a period we we call the period of the judges where judges rule over Israel. And because Israel then became completely disobedient, living in anarchy and immorality, God allowed their enemies to conquer them and enslave them again and they would cry out to God and God would send a deliverer called a judge and that judge would deliver them and this cycle repeats over and over again sin supplication salvation and and then sin supplication salvation again and again we see that for example Gideon delivered the people Samson delivered the people we could go through the list of judges like that from that book of Judges and then um, Israel is taken captive as after this period of, uh, you know, the, that described in the Chronicles and the Kings, Second Samuel and so forth. As Israel emerged from the time of Judges into a time of monarchy when kings ruled, Israel remained disobedient for the most part. There were good kings and there were bad kings, but mostly bad kings. And Israel remained disobedient because of their disobedience and breaking the Mosaic covenant that was given to them. God allowed nations to come in and conquer them. And so they were constantly fighting their enemies all around and within uh, some of the local tribes that, they, that were in that land. But eventually Assyria came and, de- and conquered them and deported many of them in uh, 722 BC. And then finally Babylon came in 586 and conquered um, Israel and burned and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and deported the people. And and it looked like the end of the nation of Israel. Uh, Things did not look good. And so Jeremiah, prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel arose in this time with encouraging words that God's got a new covenant with you and he won't break that new covenant. And God's gonna make these dry bones live. Israel's gonna be restored again. Daniel even gave a timeline for their restoration. So in the midst of this, what looked like a despairing situation, looked like the end of the road for the nation of Israel, these prophets were raised up to promise Israel that they had a future, that they had a bright and glorious future. And so when we read these prophets, we read descriptions of the kingdom that is coming that will be established eventually on earth. When we look at the nation of Israel, we see a little country what is it, 20-some miles wide, 120 miles long, something like that, surrounded by these huge nations, Egypt to the south, Jordan to the east, Syria to the northeast, um, Iraq further east, Iran. And with God's sense of humor, Israel's the only country that doesn't have oil. Isn't that? And so all these nations... Throughout history have been trying to destroy the nation of Israel. You recognize some of the little places, that little strip of land to the southwest corner of Israel by the sea is what is called Gaza. And that was turned over to the Palestinians some time ago so that they could live there. And that's what's in the news today. And the West Bank is controlled by Jordan. The West Bank is what is uh, between on the Jordan River there. That's where Bethlehem lies on that West Bank. So, let's talk about Israel and its present situation. Israel's history has been a history of war, but let's go into modern times and modern history. When Israel, Israel did not exist in their land as a nation. After the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and dispersed the country, all over the world. That's why there are Jews all over the world in the great uh, diaspora. In fact, you know what? Someone has said, uh, I've heard it several times, there's more Jews living in New York City today than there is in the country of Israel. And yet they are the most genetically pure race of people in the whole world. So God has preserved them genetically, has preserved their population. They are still here, but they are scattered. And they had no homeland. And then after World War II, uh, the British and Americans and the Russians and so forth divided their territories up, and they gave Israel back their land, the land of Canaan, this strip of land that you saw on the map. That was given to them in 1948, and there was great rejoicing. Well, immediately, the neighbors, uh, Arab Uh, All the Arab neighbors, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, immediately attacked and invaded Israel. But Israel was able to hold them off and become victorious. This little nation, surrounded by these great powers, intending to wipe them off the map. Well, they were recognized as a nation in 1952 by the United Nations. And so they exist today, but their enemies have not ceased to try to destroy them. There are many wars and skirmishes and acts of terrorism all in between these wars, but the other great war that comes along is the Six-Day War in 1967. You know why they call it the Six-Day War? (laughs) Because Israel had the victory in six days. The armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon attacked Israel, and their goal was to wipe them off the map. They had huge superiority in armor, in troops, in aircraft. Uh, 100,000 troops, 990, 900, or 9, almost 1,000 tanks they had. And the Israel Air Force did a preemptive strike and destroyed the air, force of, the air forces of their enemies while they were still on the ground. With 200 aircraft, they destroyed a 600 aircraft enemy. And they, afterwards is where they gained the country, that they held more land than you saw on that map. They held Sinai, which was down towards Egypt, and they held the Golan Heights. They held the Gaza Strip. They held the West Bank that you saw was given back to the Palestinians today, or Jordan. And for the first time in 2,500 years, they completely owned all of Jerusalem. In six days. How do you explain that in human terms? In 1973, of course, there's a lot going on in between these wars, but in 1973, there was a big war called the Yom Kippur War, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Of course, chosen probably on purpose by the Arab nations to attack Israel once again, trying to win back the territory they lost in the 1967 war. And so they were attacked by Egyptian and Syrian forces on this holy day. And in spite of the surprise attack and heavy losses, Israel still prevailed with the help of the United States. And of course, there's been trouble ever since, but that brings us to today. That brings us to last month, when once again on Yom Kippur, the holiest day in Israel's calendar, 50 years later, Hamas terrorists surge into Israel and kill 1,400 people, the most people to die since the Holocaust. And you've read the story about Grenades thrown into bomb shelters where people are huddled and screaming, where people are killed in their beds, where babies are burned and their heads are cut off. And that's all I'm going to say. You know that. Terrible atrocities by the terrorists of Hamas. And that is yet unresolved. But if you had to make a prediction, how do you think that war is going to go? You see, God is still working in the present day right in front of our eyes to show us that God is at at work to preserve his people. If you wanna understand the Bible, if you wanna understand history, if you wanna understand what the world's been and where it's going, just keep your eyes on Israel. Well, what about the future of Israel? You know, again, the prophets wrote so much about the future of Israel. Uh, I'm just gonna mention maybe just two or three prophecies here to show you what they predicted would be the future Isaiah 41, for example, Uh, 11 and 12, And those who strive with you, Israel, shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contend with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. Well, we've seen that to be true, haven't we? How about the words of Zechariah? He's so clear about the end times here. In that day that when the Lord returns, he will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. You see, when Israel is pushed to the very verge of extinction in the end of the tribulation period, and all the nations of the world have come against her, Jesus is going to show up, and he's going to show up with his wounds. And Israel is going to look at the wounds in Jesus' hand and his feet, and they're going to say, uh-oh. And they're going to mourn for the one that they have pierced and Israel will be reborn. Not just the individuals but the whole nation will be reborn at that time. Now you understand that there's always been Jews who have been saved and the Bible records incidences of that in the Old, in the New Testament. Uh, you see Jewish people who were saved. That was the first church and even today Jewish individuals are being saved. But you understand that the nation of Israel is in unbelief. As a nation, the leaders of Israel representing the nation have rejected Christ as Messiah. He's not even on their radar for that matter. And so Israel today is judicially blinded by God. At the end of the book of Acts, when Paul's message to the Jews in Rome was rejected, Paul said, okay, I'm turning to the Gentiles and God's going to send on you a spirit of stupor. He's going to blind your eyes. He's going to plug your ears. You're not going to understand the message. And so God has turned to us, Gentiles, to provoke Israel to jealousy, he goes on to explain in chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. To provoke Israel to jealousy, they're going to see us Gentiles worshiping their their Jesus, and it's going to get their curiosity up. But it won't be, in, and some will be saved, but it won't be until that day when they're pushed to the brink of extinction that the nation will be restored. Well, the Old Testament prophets predicted that, but Paul knew his theology. He knew the Old Testament. That's the only Bible he had. And so he says in Romans chapter 11 very clearly. And so, he says, after describing how God has not forgotten about Israel but has an elect remnant of faithful Jews in Israel, and he goes on to talk about the nation, the whole nation, he says, so all Israel will be saved as it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. He's talking about the Jews who persecute Gentiles. At that time, Paul was being persecuted by the Jewish people. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, God's purpose. His sovereign purpose. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the sake of the fathers. Because God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. Because God made an unconditional promise to Isaac and Jacob and to Joseph. And right on down the line and repeated it throughout history. And made the Davidic covenant with David, which is just another uh, expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the new covenant but the, that the prophets recited, especially Jeremiah. 31 through 33 and Ezekiel 36 through 37 which promise spiritual blessings on Israel and a new heart and a new hunger for God and and they will be washed and cleansed and they will be forgiven their sins and, uh, and, and the dry bones will live. That's part of the new covenant. For the sake of the fathers, all Israel is going to be saved because why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God does not lie. He does not go back on his word. He does not break his promises. His words and promises are irrevocable, proven and demonstrated to us by how he treats the nation of Israel. Now here's where it comes into our lives. Because you see, Israel throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament in some ways, in some places, is used as an illustration of, analogy, or an example of the Christian life. Not individual Jews in the Old Testament, in the nation, but the nation as a whole is often compared to the experience of the Christian life. What do I mean by that? Well, just a few things as examples here. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians 9 and Hebrews chapter 3, you would see these things. Israel lost their privileges because in the wilderness they they worshipped idols. And so at the end of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, you know, I buffet my body lest I become disqualified, lest I lose my rewards. And he goes on in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, to say that like Israel in the wilderness, they were blessed with all these privileges, but they worshiped idols, and so they were disciplined by God. And so the nation of Israel pictures what can happen to a Christian who's disobedient. We can lose our blessings. We can lose our rewards. But that doesn't mean God is finished with Israel. It doesn't mean God's finished with us. He also says in 1 Corinthians 10 how uh, the nation of Israel was baptized into Moses when they were delivered through the Red Sea. Baptized or identified with Moses as their leader and his redemption when they were, went through the Red Sea. Likewise, we're told in Romans 6 and many other places that we're baptized into Christ. We're identified with Christ now as our deliverer. In the wilderness, the, the Israelites drank from the rock. 1 Corinthians 10 mentions that. They drank the water from the rock that spiritual water we drink today from the rock, who is Jesus Christ, who promised living water to whoever believes in Him as their Savior. Hebrews especially likes to emphasize the promised rest that Israel could have when they, when they trust in, in Jesus as their Savior, looking to the future, mostly at that time when Israel will be restored and they'll enjoy the rest of God. But When we go back in history, we look at Joshua, we look at David. When they obeyed God and led, and the people were obedient to the Mosaic covenant that they had, the law that they had, the revelation that they had, God gave them rest, meaning peace with their enemies all around them. In the book of Hebrews, I believe, promises believers as well rest when we trust in God, when we live a life by faith, not just rest in this life, but the rest that we'll enjoy in the kingdom of God. So you see, Israel then is... An example or an analogy of the Christian life. And that's why it's important for us to look at Israel today and learn from what's going on with them, with that nation. This little diagram shows that it's not the individuals in Israel, because some are saved, check marks, some are not, X marks. But as a nation, chosen by God, promised by God, ordained by God to have a future, we have the same, we have the same results, same outcome, the New Testament believer. So, I haven't looked at this particular passage, but you can look at Romans chapter 8 if you want to, and we're going to look at verse 35 and following. In Romans 8, this is the end of chapter 8, Romans 8 really comes after a long discussion of what grace has done, starting in chapter 3 about how grace justifies us. Who cannot depend on the law for justification salvation but he justifies us through grace he sanctifies us through grace he makes us his sons by grace we come to chapter 8 and he talks about how nobody can stand against us who can bring a charge against us if God is on our side and this kind of is now the climax of Paul's discussion of grace for the individual it's the mountaintop it's the peak He can't say it in a more eloquent or uh, illustrative language than he does beginning in verse 35. I'm not going to read it, but I just want to look at the elements of that with you, if it's before you. He talks about who, he asks the rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I've always wondered why he didn't say, what can separate us from the love of Christ? But he says, who? Who? My off-the-cuff theory on that, I'd like to study it some more, my off-the-cuff theory is that who is always behind the what? When bad things happen to us, sometimes there's, there's evil people behind it or evil spirit behind it. And so ultimately, we're not up against circumstances and things. We're up against personalities who are out to destroy us, whether they be human or satanic perhaps that's why. And that includes ourselves. Who will separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he goes on to list a lot of things. In verse 34, four, 5, he says, not tribulation. Tribulation, trials, troubles that come upon us. Difficult times that we face that make us stay up at night and wonder or worry what's going to happen. Illnesses or, or uh, losing your job, Or personal conflicts. These are tribulations, troubles. You know, every Christian in our lives, we all have tribulation, times of tribulations, because the scriptures say so much in the New Testament about how we are to trust God in those times of tribulations. But those tribulations do not separate us from the love of God. No matter how difficult they are, we still know that God loves us. Or distress, I don't know exactly but the difference with distress would be, distress reminds me of stress and anxiety. We're worried about something, we're, we're under a lot of pressure. It's affecting our nervous system. I've, I've, I know people who have damaged their nervous system totally because they were so stressed out about a work situation. For example, the person I'm thinking of, that for, the, for the rest of his life, you know, he just had this tremor in him. He says he's never been the same since. That kind of distress. And really take its toll on a person, but it never separates us from the love of God. God loves us through it. Or persecution. Persecution is almost a joke to talk about in the United States, although it may become more and more serious, but you may be persecuted lightly if you're a Christian. You might be ignored or ostracized in the United States, but I tell you what, when we leave, when we leave these shores and go to other countries, right now, today as I speak, there are Christians being murdered in Nigeria, there are being Christians murdered in, in, uh, in Sudan. There are being Christians uh, killed in Myanmar, in China, and on and on and on. They say that there are more Christian martyrs today than in any other period of human history. Yeah, there is persecution going on there. And what we need to know is that during those times of persecution, no matter what people do to us, there is a God who loves us. There's a God who loves us. Famine. You say Christians don't starve. Well, I happen to know they do. Because I just got an email last week from my ministry partner in Myanmar, and he says he's got his children's home and the children don't have anything to eat. He's asking me for money. They're hungry. It's not the first time that he's been in that kind of situation. Even when we don't have enough to eat. Does that mean God doesn't love us? He doesn't provide for our needs? Well, I think God's going to provide his needs. I I know he will. God doesn't let his children starve to death. But that doesn't mean they don't go hungry sometimes, and yet God loves us even when there's no food in the pantry or when we live from day to day or from paycheck to paycheck. God's love is still there. It's the constant behind all these circumstances. Not nakedness. Nakedness is going to separate us from God makes me, even God can look on your nakedness and still love you. (laughs) I'm sorry, it just came up in my head. (laughs) Why does he say nakedness, though? Maybe it's because when we're naked, we're exposed to the world. We're the most vulnerable. Jesus hung on the cross, and he was naked to the world. He was at his most vulnerable, and yet God's love was there with him the whole time. He was never, never separated from God's love. not peril. Peril would be danger. Dangerous situations. We don't face a lot of peril in this country, but drive downtown in some of these big cities and you're in danger of carjacking, you're in danger of kidnapping, you're in danger of rape, murder, or muggings or whatever. When we were in South Africa earlier in the summer, um, my friend, Asari, who you heard, he was mugged just shortly before we got there uh, weeks before we got there and um, by a car that followed him to his hotel and as soon as he stopped at the hotel they jumped out they mugged him hit him with the, over the head with their gun and so forth and so when we were there we did speak in a church during the daytime but at nighttime I said I'm not going to that church unless that church can guarantee our security and they couldn't do it so uh, sorry canceled that meeting and it was it was not just me saying that I mean that was just common sense that we shouldn't do that because Johannesburg has become the rape and murder capital of the world, almost. Christians can live in peril. But that doesn't mean we should take stupid chances. But we know that God loves us, even in those times when we find ourselves in a dangerous situation. Not swords. Swords will not separate us. I think this is talking about here uh, martyrdom. Literally, swords for, for those who are beheaded by terrorists, for example. And sometimes those are Christian people as well. And throughout history, certainly Christians have been beheaded and murdered in many other terrible ways. Ways, But even then, whether their heads are cut off or whether they're uh, burned at the stake, God's love is there. Was it Polycarp who went and was burned at the stake and yet when he was given a chance to recant, he said, I've served God. He's been all, all of my life. Why should I deny him now? And there have been martyrs who have gone to, this, to their death singing hymns because God's love never deserted them. And then we go on in Romans, and Paul's kind of summing it up. and he's, It's almost as if he's searching for words to try to describe this indescribable love of God. And so he says, not death or life. That kind of covers it, doesn't it? Not death or life. No matter when you die, no matter how you die, you're never separated from the love of God. I think of my mother who died several years ago and on her deathbed in a comatose state, in the presence of my, my sister, not me, but my sister, and a health worker, hospice worker. She sat up straight in bed and she said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's awesome. And then she went back into her coma, never to speak again. How do you explain that? My mother never said, thank you, Jesus, as far as I know ever <laughs> in my hearing. God's love was with her in death. I've seen and worked with some couples who've gone through very, very difficult times but face death bravely because they know God is there and they're not separated from his love. So no matter, even at the end of life in terrible situations that we might face, whether it be a slow death or an accidental death, God's love is there. And then in life. Well, that kind of covers everything, doesn't it? The whole list that we just, just read. No matter what happens to us in this life, God's love will preserve us through it. And he goes on to explore the spiritual realm. He says, not angels or principalities or powers can separate us from the love of God. Here, I think he's talking about uh, satanic powers, evil powers, demons who tend to uh, disrupt and And uh, deceive by doctrines or by evil people or sometimes outright satanic uh, possession and interference. No matter what he throws at us it doesn't separate us from the love of God. Even Paul had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan he called it, but he knew God loved him. Not things in the present or things to come. No matter what you're going through today or no matter what will happen tomorrow that we don't even know. I thought I was going to be in Israel today. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's why James says, we say, Lord willing, I'll do this or that. But no matter what happens tomorrow, whether it's what you planned or what you didn't plan, no matter if your retirement's going as you think it's supposed to or whether it's not, God's got you covered. He loves you and he'll preserve you through that. And not any created thing not any created thing. I think that covers everything in the universe. Paul's pretty thorough, don't you think? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, some people might be thinking and say, well, but, there's always a well, but, right? But you don't know how I've sinned. I mean, I really sinned, even after I was a Christian. You don't know what I did. We have the promise of God that all of our sins are covered by what Jesus did on the cross. When he said it's finished, he meant it. When he said it was paid for, he meant it. And so we have a promise like in Romans 5.20 where it says, where grace abounded, sin abounded even more. What does that mean? It means that there's no sin that we can commit that outruns God's grace or outdoes God's grace. His grace is inexhaustible, which is hard for us to imagine, but it's inexhaustible. And no matter what we've done, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how terrible you feel, God still loves you. And His grace is still available there to preserve you and keep you and see you home. Then someone says, but, but, what if a person just stops believing? What if a person becomes a Hindu or a Buddhist or just an atheist? I get this question quite a bit. It's usually hypothetical, but it does happen. And I hear stories of where people who seem to be truly born-again Christians totally denounce Christianity. How about this guy, Joshua Harris? Remember him? He wrote that book, um, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and he had a big church in Maryland and so forth. And now he's pretty much just declared himself non-Christian. Anyway, it can happen. But Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 13 reminds us that God does not break his promises. If we are faithless, and literally that word means unbelieving, if we are without faith, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You see, when God makes a promise, That promise is irrevocable. He cannot deny himself by going back on that promise. No matter what we do, God's faithfulness, God's promise doesn't depend on our response. And so yeah, we can say that we renounce him. I have really a big problem thinking that anybody really does. But let's take them them at their word that they're sincere and that they really do renounce him and renounce the Christian faith. God made a promise. God said, whoever believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior has everlasting life. Now, if somebody's going to renounce God's promise, they're going to have to figure out how to be unborn. They're going to have to figure out how to redefine Christian life, so eternal life, so it doesn't mean forever. They're going to have to figure out how to be unsealed from the Spirit. They're going to have to figure out how to get out of that double grasp of grace where Jesus says he has us in our hands, John chapter 10, verse 28 through 30, and then we're in God's, he's in God's hands, they're gonna have to figure out how to break that grip. They're gonna have to figure out how to be ununited with Jesus Christ because those who are in Christ are united with him in his death and his resurrection. It's just too hard to not be a Christian. It's just too hard to undo what God has promised and what he has done when we believe in Christ as Savior. In fact, friends, it's impossible. You can deny your faith all you want to. Someone can deny their faith all they want to. But God is faithful to his promises. Well, where does that leave us then? God will preserve you by his grace. He will preserve his people by his grace. He did it for Israel. He's doing it for Israel. He will do it for Israel. He's done it in your past. As you look back, he's doing it today. And your future is going to be just as, as sure with God's preservation. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have hard times because you're going to have tri- troubles, trials, famine and tribulation and, and nakedness and all the things we listed. Those, Paul was saying those things because he knows people going through that. We're going to have troubles, but guess what? We win the end game. We win the end game. So you can live fearlessly, you can live confidently, because we're covered by God's dome of grace. You probably plan to, is it Cowboys playing today? Maybe, right? Who, knows, who cares? <laughs> Well, maybe I shouldn't use them for an example, but unless you watch a Cowboys game, they're going to have some great plays and it's going to look like they're ahead. and then they're going to have some setbacks. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be quarterbacks sacked. But what if you knew the end game was that they were going to win? It would change your whole perspective on how you see those setbacks, wouldn't it? So just tape record the games, But messages. is <laughs> They can go through all the commercials, and a three-hour game ends up being 20 minutes after all. <laughs> that's how I watch football. <laughs> anyway, I've, that's what I want to say today. God's got you covered. He'll preserve you by his grace. On the cross, he said, it is finished, and he didn't die on the cross for you and for me to lose us anywhere in the process. He said, whoever, whoever the Father gives to me, I will keep, and they will never perish Never, ever, we call that eternal security. You can't lose what God has given you. You can't break what God has promised you. No matter what your experience is, no matter how bad it is, God's got you covered. He will preserve you by his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace of God that we can hardly fathom in its greatness. We thank you that it protects and preserves us. We thank you that we know the end game, that we're going to win. We're going to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if there's anyone listening today who doesn't have that confidence, may they claim today is the day they put their faith and they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin who gives them eternal life. And may they come to Uh, live confidently in this promise that you've given to us. We thank you for it. Help us to reflect that confidence as we live today and as we share this message with others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.